Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tonight. I read more stories from beautiful stories from Shakespeare by Edith Nesbitt. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Twelfth Night Orsino, the Duke of Valeria, was deeply in love with the beautiful Countess named Olivia. Yet all his love was in vain, for she disdained his suit, and when her brother died, she sent back a messenger from the duke, bidding him tell his master 
that for seven years she would not let the very air behold her face, but that, like a nun, she would walk veiled. And all this for the sake of a dead brother's love, which she would keep fresh and lasting in her sad remembrance. The Duke longed for someone to whom he could tell his sorrow and repeat over and over again the story of his love. And chance brought him such a companion. For about this time a goodly ship was wrecked on the Illyrian coast, and among those who reached land in safety were the captain and a fair young maid named Viola. But she was little grateful for being rescued from the perils of the sea, since she feared that her twin brother was drowned, Sebastian, as dear to her as the heart in her bosom, and so like her that, but for the difference in their manner of dress, one could hardly be told from the other. The captain, for her comfort, told her that he had seen her brother bind himself to a strong mast that lived upon the sea, and that thus there was hope that he might be saved. Viola now asked in whose country she was, and learning that the young Duke Orsino ruled there, and was as noble in his nature as in his name, she decided to disguise herself in male attire and seek for employment with him as a page. In this she succeeded, and now from day to day she had to listen to the story of Orsino's love. At first she sympathized very truly with him, but soon her sympathy grew to love. At last it occurred to Orsino that his hopeless love suit might prosper better if he sent this pretty lad to woo Olivia for him. Viola unwillingly went on this errand, but when she came to the house, Malvolio, Olivia's steward, a vain, officious man, sick, as his mistress told him, of self-love, forbade the messenger admittance. Viola, however, who was now called Cesario, refused to take any denial and vowed to have speech with the countess. Olivia, hearing how her instructions were defied and curious to see this daring youth, said, We'll once more hear Orsino's embassy. When Viola was admitted to her presence and the servants had been sent away, she listened patiently to the reproaches which this bold messenger from the duke poured upon her. And listening, she fell in love with the supposed Cesario. And when Cesario had gone, Olivia longed to send some love token after him. So calling Malvolio, she bade him follow the boy. He left this ring behind him, she said, taking one from her finger. Tell him I will none of it. Malvolio did as he was bid, and then Viola, who of course knew perfectly well that she had left no ring behind her, saw with a woman's quickness that Olivia loved her. Then she went back to the Duke, very sad at heart for her lover, and for Olivia, and for herself. It was but cold comfort she could give Orsino, who now sought to ease the pangs of despised love by listening to sweet music, while Cesario stood by his side. Ah, said the Duke to his page that night, you too have been in love. A little, answered Viola. What kind of woman is it, he asked. Of your complexion, she answered. What years, in faith, was his next question. To this came the pretty answer. About your years, my lord. Too old by heaven, cried the Duke. Let still the woman take an elder than herself. And Viola very meekly said, I think it well, my lord. 
by and by Orsino begged Cesario once more to visit Olivia and to plead his love suit. But she, thinking to dissuade him, said, If some lady loved you as you love Olivia. Ah, that cannot be, said the duke. But I know, Viola went on, what love woman may have for a man. My father had a daughter loved a man, as it might be, she added, blushing. Perhaps, were I a woman, I should love your lordship. And what is her history? he asked. A blank, my lord, Viola answered. She never told her love, but let concealment, like a worm in the bud, feed on her damask cheek. She pined and thought, and with a green and yellow melancholy she sat, like patience on a monument, smiling at grief. Was not this love indeed? But died thy sister of her love, my boy? the duke asked, and Viola, who had all the time been telling her own love for him in this pretty fashion, said, I am all the daughters my father has, and all the brothers. Sir, shall I go to the lady? To her in haste, said the duke, at once forgetting all about the story, and give her this jewel. So Viola went, and this time poor Olivia was unable to hide her love, and openly confessed it with such passionate truth that Viola left her hastily, saying, Never more will I deplore my master's tears to you. But in vowing this, Viola did not know the tender pity she would feel for others' suffering. So when Olivia, in the violence of her love, sent a messenger, praying Cesario to visit her once more, Cesario had no heart to refuse the request. But the favours which Olivia bestowed upon this mere page aroused the jealousy of Sir Andrew Aguecheek, a foolish rejected lover of hers, who at that time was staying at her house with her merry old uncle Sir Toby. This same Sir Toby dearly loved a practical joke, and knowing Sir Andrew to be an arrant coward, he thought that if he could bring off a duel between him and Cesario, there would be rare sport indeed. So he induced Sir Andrew to send a challenge, which he himself took to Cesario. The poor page in great terror said, I will return again to the house. I am no fighter. Back you shall not to the house, said Sir Toby, unless you fight me first. And, as he looked a very fierce old gentleman, Viola thought it best to await Sir Andrew's coming. And when he at last made his appearance in a great fight, if the truth had been known, she tremblingly drew her sword, and Sir Andrew, in like fear, followed her example. Happily for them both, at this moment, some officers of the court came on the scene and stopped the intended duel. Viola gladly made off with what speed she might while Sir Toby called after her. A very paltry boy, and more a coward than a hare. Now while these things were happening, Sebastian had escaped all the dangers of the deep and had landed safely in Illyria, where he determined to make his way to the Duke's court. On his way thither, he passed Olivia's house just as Viola had left it in such a hurry. And whom should he meet but Sir Toby and Sir Andrew? Sir Andrew, mistaking Sebastian for the cowardly Cesario, took his courage in both hands and walking up to him struck him, saying, There's for you. Why, there's for you. And there, and there, said Sebastian, biting back a great deal harder and again and again, till Sir Toby came to the rescue of his friend. Sebastian, however, tore himself free from Sir Toby's clutches 
and drawing his sword would have fought them both. But that Olivia herself, having heard of the quarrel, came running in, and with many reproaches sent Sir Toby and his friend away. Then turning to Sebastian, whom she too thought to be Cesario, she besought him with many a pretty speech to come into the house with her. Sebastian, half-dazed and all delighted with her beauty and grace, readily consented, and that very day, so great was Olivia's haste. They were married, before she had discovered that he was not Cesario, for Sebastian was quite certain whether or not he was in a dream. Meanwhile, Orsino, hearing how ill Cesario sped with Olivia, visited her himself, taking Cesario with him. Olivia met them both before her door, and seeing, as she thought, her husband there, reproached him for leaving her, while to the duke she said that his suit was as fat and wholesome to her as howling after music. Still so cruel, said Orsino. Still so constant, she answered. Then Orsino's anger, growing to cruelty, he vowed that, to be revenged on her, he would kill Cesario, whom he knew she loved. Come, boy, he said to the page. And Viola, following him as he moved away, said, I, to do you rest, a thousand deaths would die. A great fear took hold on Olivia, and she cried aloud, Cesario, husband, stay. Her husband, asked the duke angrily. No, my lord, not I, said Viola. Call forth the Holy Father, cried Olivia. And the priest who had married Sebastian and Olivia, coming in, declared Cesario to be the bridegroom. O thou dissembling cub, the duke exclaimed, farewell and take her, but go where thou and I henceforth may never meet. At this moment Sir Andrew came up with bleeding crown, complaining that Cesario had broken his head, and Sir Toby's as well. I never hurt you, said Viola very positively. You drew your sword on me, but I bespoke you fair and hurt you not. Yet for all her protesting, no one there believed her. But all their thoughts were on a sudden change to wonder. When Sebastian came in. I'm sorry, madam, he said to his wife. I have hurt your kinsman. Pardon me, sweet, even for the vows we made each other so late ago. One face, one voice, one habit. And two persons, cried the duke, looking first at Viola and then at Sebastian. An apple cleft in two, said one who knew Sebastian, is not more twin than these two creatures. Which is Sebastian? I never had a brother, said Sebastian. I had a sister, whom the blind waves and surges have devoured. Were you a woman, he said to Viola, I should let my tears fall upon your cheek and say, thrice welcome, drowned Viola. Then Viola, rejoicing to see her dear brother alive, confessed that she was indeed his sister Viola. As she spoke, Orsino felt the pity that is akin to love. Boy, he said, thou hast said to me a thousand times thou never shouldst love woman like to me. And all those sayings will I overswear, Viola replied, and all those swearings keep true. Give me thy hand, Orsino cried in gladness. Thou shalt be my wife and my fancy's queen. Thus was the gentle Viola made happy, while Olivia found in Sebastian a constant lover and a good husband, and he in her a true and loving wife. The Tempest 
Prospero, the Duke of Milan, was a learned and studious man who lived among his books, leaving the management of his dukedom to his brother Antonio, in whom, indeed, he had complete trust. But that trust was ill-rewarded, for Antonio wanted to wear the duke's crown himself, and, to gain his ends, would have killed his brother, but for the love the people bore him. However, with the help of Prospero's great enemy Alonso, king of Naples, he managed to get into his hands the dukedom with all its honour, power and riches. For they took Prospero to sea, and when they were far away from land, forced him into a little boat with no tackle, mast or sail. In their cruelty and hatred, they put his little daughter, Miranda, not yet three years old, into the boat with him, and sailed away, leaving them to their fate. But one among the courtiers with Antonio was true to his rightful master, Prospero. To save the duke from his enemies was impossible, but much could be done to remind him of his subject's love. So this worthy lord, whose name was Gonzalo, secretly placed in the boat some fresh water, provisions, and clothes, and what Prospero valued most of all, some of his precious books. The boat was cast on an island, and Prospero and his little one landed in safety. Now this island was enchanted, and for years had lain under the spell of a fell witch, Sycorax, who had imprisoned in the trunks of trees all the good spirits she found there. She died shortly before Prospero was cast on those shores, but the spirits, of whom Ariel was the chief, still remained in their prisons. Prospero was a great magician, for he had devoted himself almost entirely to the study of magic during the years in which he allowed his brother to manage the affairs of Milan. By his art, he set free the imprisoned spirits, yet kept them obedient to his will, and they were more truly his subjects than his people in Milan had been. For he treated them kindly, as long as they did his bidding, and he exercised his power over them wisely and well. One creature alone he found it necessary to treat with harshness. This was Caliban, the son of the wicked old witch, a hideous, deformed monster, horrible to look on, and vicious and brutal in all his habits. When Miranda was grown up into a maiden, sweet and fair to see, it chanced that Antonio and Alonso, with Sebastian, his brother, and Ferdinand, his son, were at sea together with old Gonzalo, and their ship came near Prospero's island. Prospero, knowing they were there, raised by his art a great storm, so that even the sailors on board gave themselves up for lost. And first among them all, Prince Ferdinand leaped into the sea, and as his father thought in his grief, was drowned. But Ariel brought him safe ashore, and all the rest of the crew, although they were washed overboard, were landed unhurt in different parts of the island, and the good ship herself, which they all thought had been wrecked, lay at anchor in the harbour whither Ariel had brought her. Such wonders could prosper and his spirits perform. While yet the tempest was raging, Prospero showed his daughter the brave ship labouring in the trough of the sea and told her that it was filled with living human beings like themselves. She, in pity of their lives, prayed him who had raised this storm to quell it. Then her father bade her to have no fear, for he intended to save every one of them. Then, for the first time, he told her the story of his life and hers, and that he had caused this storm to rise 
in order that his enemies, Antonio and Alonso, who were on board, might be delivered into his hands. When he had made an end of his story, he charmed her into sleep, for Ariel was at hand, and he had work for him to do. Ariel, who longed for his complete freedom, grumbled to be kept in drudgery. But on being threateningly reminded of all the sufferings he had undergone when Sycorax ruled in the land, and of the debt of gratitude he owed to the master who had made those sufferings to end, he ceased to complain and promised faithfully to do whatever Prospero might command. Do so, said Prospero, and in two days I will discharge thee. Then he bade Ariel take the form of a water nymph and sent him in search of the young prince. And Ariel, invisible to Ferdinand, hovered over him, singing the while. Come onto these yellow sands, and then take hands. Courtseed when you have and kissed, the wild waves whist. Foot it featly here and there, and sweet sprites the burden bear. And Ferdinand followed the magic singing as the song changed into a solemn air, and the words brought grief to his heart and tears to his eyes, for thus they ran. Full fathom five thy father lies. Of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes, nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Sea nymphs hourly ring his knell, hark, now I hear them, ding dong bell. And so singing, Ariel led the spellbound prince into the presence of Prospero and Miranda. Then behold, all happened as Prospero desired. For Miranda, who had never, since she could first remember, seen any human being save her father, looked on the youthful prince with reverence in her eyes and love in her secret heart. I might call him, she said, a thing divine, for nothing natural I ever saw so noble. And Ferdinand, beholding her beauty with wonder and delight, exclaimed, Most sure the goddess on whom these heirs attend nor did he attempt to hide the passion which she inspired in him, for scarcely had they exchanged half a dozen sentences before he vowed to make her his queen if she were willing. But Prospero, though secretly delighted, pretended wrath. You come here as a spy, he said to Ferdinand. I will manacle your neck and feet together, and you shall feed on freshwater mussels, withered roots and husk, and have seawater to drink. Follow. No, said Ferdinand, and drew his sword. But on the instant Prospero charmed him so that he stood there like a statue, still a stone. And Miranda, in terror, prayed her father to have mercy on her lover. But he harshly refused her and made Ferdinand follow him to his cell. There he set the prince to work, making him remove thousands of heavy logs of timber and pile them up. And Ferdinand patiently obeyed, and thought his toil all too well repaid by the sympathy of the sweet Miranda. She, in very pity, would have helped him in his hard work, but he would not let her. Yet he could not keep her from the secret of his love, and she, hearing it, rejoiced and promised to be his wife. Then Prospero released him from his servitude, and glad at heart, he gave his consent to their marriage. Take her, he said, she is thine own. In the meantime, Antonio and Sebastian in another part of the island were plotting the murder of Alonso, the king of Naples. For Ferdinand, being dead as they thought, 
Sebastian would succeed to the throne on Alonso's death. And they would have carried out their wicked purpose while their victim was asleep. But Ariel woke him in good time. Many tricks did Ariel play them. Once he set a banquet before them, and just as they were going to fall to, he appeared to them amid thunder and lightning in the form of a harpy, and immediately the banquet disappeared. Then Ariel upbraided them with their sins and vanished too. Prospero, by his enchantments, drew them all to the grove without his cell, where they waited, trembling and afraid, and now at last bitterly repenting them of their sins. Prospero determined to make one last use of his magic power. And then, said he, I'll break my staff, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. So he made heavenly music to sound in the air, and appeared to them in his proper shape as the Duke of Milan. Because they repented, he forgave them, and told them the story of his life since they had cruelly committed him and his baby daughter to the mercy of wind and waves. Alonso, who seemed sorriest of them all for his past crimes, lamented the loss of his heir. But Prospero drew back a curtain and showed them Ferdinand and Miranda playing at chess. Great was Alonso's joy to greet his loved son again. And when he heard the fair maid with whom Ferdinand was playing was Prospero's daughter, and that the young folks had plighted their troth, he said, Give me your hands. Let grief and sorrow still embrace his heart that doth not wish you joy. So all ended happily. The ship was safe in the harbour. And next day they all set sail for Naples, where Ferdinand and Miranda were to be wed. Ariel gave them calm seas and auspicious gales, and many were the rejoicings at the wedding. Then Prospero, after many years of absence, went back to his own dukedom, where he was welcomed with great joy by his faithful subjects. He practiced the arts of magic no more, but his life was happy, and not only because he had found his own again, but chiefly because, when his bitterest foes, who had done him deadly wrong, lay at his mercy, he took no vengeance on them, but nobly forgave them. As for Ariel, Prospero made him free as air, so that he could wander where he would, and sing with a light heart his sweet song. Where the bee sucks, there suck I, in a cowslip bell I lie. There I couch when owls do cry. On the bat's back I do fly. After summer, merrily, merrily, merrily shall I live now, under the blossom that hangs on the bough. The Winter's Tale Leontes was the king of Sicily, and his dearest friend was Polixenes, king of Bohemia. They had been brought up together and only separated when they reached man's estate and each had to go and rule over his kingdom. After many years, when each was married and had a son, Polixenes came to stay with Leontes in Sicily. Leontes was a violent-tempered man and rather silly, and he took it into his stupid head that his wife, Hermione, liked Polixenes better than she did him, her own husband. When once he had got this into his head, nothing could put it out, and he ordered one of his lords, Camillo, to put a poison in Polixenes' wine. Camillo tried to dissuade him from this wicked action, but finding he was not to be moved, pretended to consent. He then told Polixenes what was proposed against him, and they fled from the court of Sicily that night and returned to Bohemia. 
where Camillo lived on as Felixne's friend and counsellor. Leontes threw the queen into prison, and her son, the heir to the throne, died of sorrow to see his mother so unjustly and cruelly treated. While the queen was in prison, she had a little baby, and a friend of hers named Polina had the baby dressed in its best and took it to show the king, thinking that the sight of his helpless little daughter would soften his heart towards his dear queen, who had never done him any wrong, and who had loved him a great deal more than he deserved. But the king would not look at the baby, and he ordered Polina's husband to take it away in a ship and leave it in the most deserted and dreadful place he could find, which Polina's husband, very much against his will, was obliged to do. Then the poor queen was brought up to be tried for treason and preferring Polixenes to her king. But really, she had never thought of anyone except Leontes, her husband. Leontes had sent some messengers to ask the god Apollo whether he was not right in his cruel thoughts of the queen. But he had not patience to wait till they came back. And so it happened that they arrived in the middle of the trial. The oracle said, Hermione is innocent. Polixenes, blameless, Camillo, a true subject, Leontes, a jealous tyrant, and the king shall live without an heir if that which is lost be not found. Then a man came and told them that the little prince was dead. The poor queen, hearing this, collapsed, and then the king saw how wicked and wrong he had been. He ordered Polina and the ladies who were with the queen to take her away and try to restore her. But Polina came back in a few moments and told the king that Hermione was dead. Now Leontes' eyes were at last opened to his folly. His queen was dead, and the little daughter who might have been a comfort to him had been sent away to be the prey of wolves. Life had nothing left for him now. He gave himself up to his grief and passed many sad years in prayer and remorse. The baby princess was left on the seacoast of Bohemia, the very kingdom where Polixenes reigned. Polina's husband never went home to tell Leontes where he had left the baby. For as he was going back to the ship, he met a bear and was torn to pieces. So there was an end of him. But the poor deserted little baby was found by a shepherd. She was richly dressed and had with her some jewels and a paper was pinned to her cloak saying that her name was Perdita, and that she came of noble parents. The shepherd, being a kind-hearted man, took home the little baby to his wife, and they brought it up as their own child. She had no more teaching than a shepherd's child generally has, but she inherited from her royal mother many graces and charms, so that she was quite different from the other maidens in the village where she lived. One day, Prince Florizel, the son of the good king of Bohemia, was bunting near the shepherd's house and saw Perdita, now grown up to a charming woman. He made friends with the shepherd, not telling him that he was a prince, but saying that his name was Doricles, and that he was a private gentleman. And then, being deeply in love with the pretty Perdita, he came almost daily to see her. The king could not understand what it was that took his son nearly every day from home, so he set people to watch him, and then found out that the heir of the king of Bohemia was in love with Perdita, the pretty shepherd girl. Polixenes, 
wishing to see whether this was true, disguised himself and went with the faithful Camillo, in disguise also, to the old shepherd's house. They arrived at the feast of sheep-sharing, and though strangers, they were made very welcome. There was dancing going on, and a peddler was selling ribbons and laces and gloves, which the young men bought for their sweethearts. Florizel and Perdita, however, were taking no part in this scene, but sat quietly together talking. The king noticed the charming manners and great beauty of Perdita, never guessing that she was the daughter of his old friend, Leontes. He said to Camillo, This is the prettiest low-born lass that ever ran on the green sword. Nothing she does or seems but smacks of something greater than herself, too noble for this place. And Camillo answered, In truth, she is the queen of curds and cream. But when Florizel, who did not recognize his father, called upon the strangers to witness his betrothal with the pretty shepherdess, the king made himself known and forbade the marriage, adding that if ever she saw Florizel again, he would kill her and her old father, the shepherd. And with that, he left them. But Camillo remained behind, for he was charmed with Perdita and wished to befriend her. Camillo had long known how sorry Leontes was for that foolish madness of his, and he longed to go back to Sicily to see his old master. He now proposed that the young people should go there and claim the protection of Leontes. So they went, and the shepherd went with them, taking Perdita's jewels, her baby clothes, and the paper he had found pinned to her cloak. Leontes received them with great kindness. He was very polite to Prince Florizel, but all his looks were for Perdita. He saw how much she was like the queen Hermione, and said again and again, Such a sweet creature my daughter might have been if I had not cruelly sent her from me. When the old shepherd heard that the king had lost a baby daughter who had been left upon the coast of Bohemia, he felt sure that Perdita, the child he had reared, must be the king's daughter. And when he told his tale and showed the jewels and the paper, the king perceived that Perdita was indeed his long-lost child. He welcomed her with joy and rewarded the good shepherd. Polixenes had hastened after his son to prevent his marriage with Perdita, for when he found that she was the daughter of his old friend, he was only too glad to give his consent. Yet Leontes could not be happy. He remembered how his fair queen, who should have been at his side to share his joy in his daughter's happiness, was dead through his unkindness, and he could see nothing for a long time but, O thy mother, thy mother, and ask forgiveness of the king of Bohemia, and then kiss his daughter again, and then the prince Florizel, and then thank the old shepherd for all his goodness. Then Polina, who had been high all these years in the king's favor, because of her kindness to the dead queen Hermione, said, I have a statue made in the likeness of the dead queen, a piece many years in doing, and performed by the rare Italian master, Giulio Romano. I keep it in a private house apart, and there, ever since you lost your queen, I have gone twice or thrice a day. Will it please your majesty to go and see the statue? So Leontes and Polixenes and Florizel and Perdita with Camillo and their attendants, went to Polina's house, where there was a heavy purple curtain screening off an alcove. And Polina, with her hand on the curtain, said, She was peerless when she was alive, and I do believe that her dead likeness excels 
whatever yet you have looked upon, or that the hand of man hath done. Therefore I keep it lonely apart. But here it is, behold, and say it as well. And with that she drew back the curtain and showed them the statue. The king gazed and gazed on the beautiful statue of his dead wife and said nothing. I like your silence, said Polina. It the more shows off your wonder. But speak, is it not like her? It is almost herself, said the king. And yet, Polina, Hermione was not so much wrinkled. Nothing so old as this seems. Oh, not by much, said Polixenes. Ah, said Polina, that is the cleverness of the carver, who shows her to us as she would have been had she lived till now. And still Leontes looked at the statue and could not take his eyes away. If I had known, said Polina, that this poor image would so have stirred your grief and love, I would not have shown it to you. But he only answered, Do not draw the curtain. No, you must not look any longer, said Polina, or you will think it moves. Let it be, let it be, said the king. Would you not think it breathed? I will draw the curtain, said Polina. You will think it lives presently. Ah, sweet Polina, said Leontes. Make me to think so twenty years together. If you can bear it, said Polina, I can make the statue move, make it come down and take you by the hand. Only you would think it was by wicked magic. Whatever you can make her do, I am content to look on, said the king. And then, all the folks there admiring and beholding, the statue moved from its pedestal and came down the steps and put its arms round the king's neck. And he held her face and kissed her many times, for this was no statue, but the real living Queen Hermione herself. She had lived hidden by Polina's kindness all these years, and would not discover herself to her husband, though she knew he had repented, because she could not quite forgive him till she knew what had become of her little baby. Now that Perdita was found, she forgave her husband everything, and it was like a new and beautiful marriage to them to be together once more. Florizel and Perdita were married and lived long and happy. To Leontes, his many years of suffering were well paid for in the moment when, after long grief and pain, he felt the arms of his true love around him once again. Cymbeline Cymbeline was the king of Britain. He had three children. The two sons were stolen away from him when they were quite little children, and he was left with only one daughter, Imogen. The king married a second time and brought up Leonatus, the son of a dear friend, as Imogen's playfellow. And when Leonatus was old enough, Imogen secretly married him. This made the king and queen very angry, and the king, to punish Leonatus, banished him from Britain. Poor Imogen was nearly heartbroken at parting from Leonatus, and he was not less unhappy. For they were not only lovers and husband and wife, but they had been friends and comrades ever since they were quite little children. With many tears and kisses, they said goodbye. They promised never to forget each other, and that they would never care for anyone else as long as they lived. This diamond was my mother's love, said Imogen. Take it, my heart, and keep it, as long as you love me. Sweetest, fairest, answered Leonatus, 
wear this bracelet for my sake. Ah, cried Imogen, weeping, when shall we meet again? And while they were still in each other's arms, the king came in, and Leonatus had to leave without more farewell. When he was come to Rome, where he had gone to stay with an old friend of his father's, he spent his days still in thinking of his dear Imogen, and his nights in dreaming of her. One day at a feast, some Italian and French noblemen were talking of their sweethearts, and swearing that they were the most faithful and honourable and beautiful ladies in the world. And a Frenchman reminded Leonatus how he had said many times that his wife Imogen was more fair, wise, and constant than any of the ladies in France. I say so still, said Leonatus. She is not so good but that she would deceive, said Giacomo, one of the Italian nobles. She never would deceive, said Leonatus. I wager, said Giacomo, that if I go to Britain, I can persuade your wife to do whatever I wish, even if it should be against your wishes. That you will never do, said Leonatus. I wager this ring upon my finger, which was the very ring Imogen had given him at parting, that my wife will keep all her vows to me, and that you will never persuade her to do otherwise. So Giacomo wagered half his estate against the ring on Leonatus's finger, and started forthwith for Britain, with a letter of introduction to Leonatus's wife. When he reached there, he was received with all kindness, but he was still determined to win his wager. He told Imogen that her husband thought no more of her, and went on to tell many cruel lies about him. Imogen listened at first, but presently perceived what a wicked person Giacomo was, and ordered him to leave her. Then he said, Pardon me, fair lady, all that I have said is untrue. I only told you this to see whether you would believe me, or whether you were as much to be trusted as your husband thinks. Will you forgive me? I forgive you freely, said Imogen. Then, said Iacomo, perhaps you will prove it by taking charge of a trunk containing a number of jewels which your husband and I, and some other gentlemen, have bought as a present for the Emperor of Rome. I will indeed, said Imogen, do anything for my husband and a friend of my husband's. Have the jewels sent into my room, and I will take care of them. It is only for one night, said Giacomo, for I leave Britain again tomorrow. So the trunk was carried into Imogen's room, and that night she went to bed and to sleep. When she was fast asleep, the lid of the trunk opened, and a man got out. It was Giacomo. The story about the jewels was as untrue as the rest of the things he had said. He had only wished to get into a room to win his wicked wager. He looked about him and noticed the furniture, and then crept to the side of the bed where Imogen was asleep, and took from her arm the gold bracelet which had been the parting gift of her husband. Then he crept back into the trunk, and next morning sailed for Rome. When he met Leonatus, he said, I have been to Britain, and I have won the wager, for your wife no longer thinks about you. She stayed talking with me all night in her room, which is hung with tapestry and has a carved chimney piece and silver andirons in the shape of two winking cupids. I do not believe she has forgotten me. I do not believe she stayed talking with you in her room. You have heard her room described by the servants. Ah, said Iacomo, but she gave me this bracelet. She took it from her arm. I see her yet. Her pretty action did outsell her gift 
and yet enriched it too. She gave it me, and she said she prized it once. Take the ring, cried Leonatus, you have won, and you might have won my life as well, for I care nothing for it now, I know my lady has forgotten me. And mad with anger, he wrote letters to Britain, to his old servant Pisanio, ordering him to take Imogen to Milford Haven and to murder her, because she had forgotten him and given away his gift. At the same time, he wrote to Imogen herself, telling her to go with Pisanio, his old servant, to Milford Haven, and that he, her husband, would be there to meet her. Now when Pisanio got this letter, he was too good to carry out its orders and too wise to let them alone altogether. So he gave Imogen the letter from her husband and started with her for Milford Haven. Before he left, the wicked queen gave him a drink which, she said, would be useful in sickness. She hoped he would give it to Imogen and that Imogen would die and the wicked queen's son could be king. For the queen thought this drink was a poison, but really and truly it was only a sleeping draught. When Pisanio and Imogen came near to Milford Haven, he told her what was really in the letter he had had from her husband. I must go on to Rome and see him myself, said Imogen. And then Pisanio helped her to dress in boy's clothes and sent her on her way and went back to the court. Before he went, he gave her the drink he had had from the queen. Imogen went on, getting more and more tired, and at last came to a cave. Someone seemed to live there, but no one was in just then. So she went in, and as she was almost dying of hunger, she took some food she saw there, and had just done so when an old man and two boys came into the cave. She was very much frightened when she saw them, for she thought that they would be angry with her for taking their food, though she had meant to leave money for it on the table. But to her surprise, they welcomed her kindly. She looked very pretty in her boy's clothes, and her face was good as well as pretty. He shall be our brother, said both the boys, and so she stayed with them and helped to cook the food and to make things comfortable. But one day, when the old man, whose name was Bellarius, was out hunting with the two boys, Imogen fell ill and thought she would try the medicine Pisanio had given her. So she took it and at once became like a dead creature, so that when Bellarius and the boys came back from hunting, they thought she was dead, and with many tears and funeral songs, they carried her away and laid her in the wood covered with flowers. They sang sweet songs to her, and strewed flowers on her, pale primroses, and the harebell, and eglantine, and furred moss, and went away sorrowful. No sooner had they gone than Imogen awoke, and knowing not how she came there, nor where she was, went wandering through the wood. Now while Imogen had been living in the cave, the Romans had decided to attack Britain, and their army had come over, and with them Leonatus, who had grown sorry for his wickedness against Imogen, so had come back, not to fight with the Romans against Britain, but with the Britons against Rome. So as Imogen wandered alone, she met with Lucius, the Roman general, and took service with him as his page. When the battle was fought between the Romans and Britons, Valerius and his two boys fought for their own country, and Leonatus, disguised as a British peasant, fought beside them. The Romans had taken Cymbeline prisoner, and old Valerius, with his sons and Leonatus, bravely rescued the king. Then the Britons won the battle, and among the prisoners brought before the king were Lucius, with Imogen, Iacomo, Leonatus, 
who had put on the uniform of a Roman soldier. He was tired of his life since he had cruelly ordered his wife to be killed, and he hoped that, as a Roman soldier, he would be put to death. When they were brought before the king, Lucius spoke out. A Roman with a Roman's heart can suffer, he said. If I must die, so be it. This one thing only will I entreat. My boy, a Briton born, let him be ransomed. Never master had a page so kind, so duteous, diligent, true. He has done no Briton harm, though he has served a Roman. Save him, sir. Then Cymbeline looked on the page, who was his own daughter Imogen in disguise. And though he did not recognize her, he felt such a kindness that he not only spared the boy's life, but said, He shall have any boon he likes to ask of me, even though he ask a prisoner, the noblest taken. Then Imogen said, The boon I ask is that this gentleman shall say from whom he got the ring he has on his finger. And she pointed to Iacomo. Speak, said Cymbeline. How did you get that diamond? Then Iacomo told the whole truth of his villainy. At this, Leonatus was unable to contain himself, and casting aside all thought of disguise, he came forward, cursing himself for his folly in believing Iacomo's lying story, and called again and again on his wife, whom he believed dead. O Imogen, my life, my love, he cried, O Imogen. Then Imogen, forgetting she was disguised, cried out, Peace, my lord, here, here. Leonatus turned to strike the forward page who thus interfered in his great trouble. And then he saw that it was his wife Imogen, and they fell into each other's arms. The king was so glad to see his dear daughter again, and so grateful to the man who had rescued him, whom he now found to be Leonatus, that he gave his blessing on their marriage. And then he turned to Bellarius and the two boys. Now Bellarius spoke. I am your old servant, Bellarius. You accused me of treason when I had only been loyal to you, and, to be doubted, made me disloyal. So I stole your two sons, and see, they are here. And he brought forward the two boys who had sworn to be brothers to Imogen when they thought she was a boy like themselves. The wicked queen was dead of some of her own poisons, and the king, with his three children about him, lived to a happy old age. So the wicked were punished, and the good and true lived happy ever after. So may the wicked suffer, and honest folk prosper, to the world's end. Good night.